Good morning. You may be seated. Uh, so we've been going through a series uh, looking at different psalms. Uh, and we've had different people coming up. And today Mike's going to come up uh, and speak to us. But before he does, I wanted to call our attention to, to really what, what it looks like to rest and what it looks like to celebrate Sabbath. And Because uh, I think we have a tendency to, when we interact with the scriptures, to look for something we need to improve upon. To look for something that we need to do better. And Rick mentioned a couple weeks ago, if you ever hear us saying, you need to do this better, then that's a misrepresentation of what the gospel is. Because the gospel is just be, work says do. And we want to just be and live in the gospel. And in order to do that, we need to rest. Rest when we interact with scriptures. So I want to look at this quote. This is by a guy named Mark Buchanan. It's in a book I like called The Rest of God. I'm going to read it for you so you can follow along. It says, In a culture where busyness is a fetish and stillness is laziness, rest is sloth. But without rest, we miss the rest of God. The rest he invites us to enter more fully so that we might know him more deeply. Be still and know that I am God. Some knowing is never pursued, only received. And for that, you need to be still. Sabbath is both a day and an attitude to nurture such stillness. It is both time on a calendar and a disposition of the heart. It is a day we enter, but just as much as a way we see. Sabbath imparts the rest of God, actual physical, mental, spiritual rest, but also the rest of God, the things of God's nature and presence we miss in our busyness. So my encouragement to you this morning is that you would simply rest and let Mike speak truth to you. I've known Mike for uh, several years, uh, I don't know, 15 years? A long time. Uh, we, we've gone to churches together now, uh, and, and I'm excited to hear him speak. So I'm going to pray for him, and then uh, we'll begin. God, I pray that you would use this morning for your glory. God, I pray that, that as Mike speaks the scriptures over us, as we interact with the truth of your scripture, that we would not look for ways that we need to do better, but that we would simply look for ways that we can be and live in the truth of your gospel the truth that you provide. God, I pray that we would embrace that truth and you would make known to us that truth in a special way, that we would rest in you. We love you, Father. Amen. All right, good morning. I think you will notice very quickly that I am not quite as high-tech as the rest of the gang, these are all handwritten notes. Um, I'm capable, I just choose not to sometimes. So that's where we are. Um, first thing I want to do is tell a story, and it's not a story about me, uh, but it's a story that we find in the Bible. If, uh, if we could get that, uh, that passage from Second Samuel up there uh, on the screen, and I'll confess to you that What you're going to see up here is out of the ESV, and what I'm going to read to you is out of the NIV, so they're not going to be exactly the same. Um, But the message is the same. So that's all we need to know, right? This this passage is from 2 Samuel, and it it starts out, you you guys are probably, most of you familiar with the story, but 
But David is king, and he was out fighting the uh, Ammonites, I think it was. Uh, his, he left his general Joab out there to lead the battle and to keep all of that stuff going. And David came back to the palace to hang out. So uh, he's there while the army's off fighting, and from the wall of the palace, he can see down onto this house that's out in proximity. And there's this incredibly beautiful woman that he sees out there on the roof of her house, which is obviously not nearly as big as his. And he sees her and, and has stirrings and feelings for this woman, and he sends for her. And she's somebody else's wife, and David sleeps with her and sends her home and gets word a few days later that she is pregnant, and it's his kid. So now David... In addition to the first dumb thing he did, is going to do the next dumb thing, which is try to get her husband. Because her husband's a soldier. He's a captain in the army. He's out there fighting the Ammonites, which is where David is supposed to be. And he sends for this guy and brings him home. He wants him to come home, sleep with his wife, so that it looks like it's his kid. And David's off the hook. But this guy is faithful to God and God's law says that while you're engaged in this battle and everything else, you don't come home sleep with your wife. You keep yourself pure, you keep yourself holy, you keep yourself in God's will so that he will give you the victory in the battle against your enemies. That's what the law said, and this guy said, okay, I'm going to do that. So he wouldn't even go into his house. He wouldn't even give in to the temptation by going into his house. He slept outside his own door. The first night. Because David had said, hey, listen, you're doing a great job. Take a little R&R. He's like, I ain't doing it. Now David's got another problem. Because this guy won't sleep with his wife. So David's secret, his lie is going to come out. So David sends him back to the front lines. And sends word to Joab to put this guy where the fighting is the fiercest. So that he'll be killed. And Joab does it. And this guy gets killed, and he sends word back to David. Joab's not happy about it, but David says, look, this is a good thing, don't worry about it. So that's where we pick up the story here. David has slept with this guy's wife, got her pregnant, and then had him killed to cover up his crime. And after the official mourning period is over, this girl's name is Bathsheba, you've heard of her. After the official mourning period is over, David brings Bathsheba into his castle, makes her his wife. And that's where we pick up here with Nathan. And I'll tell you something else about Nathan. Nathan is kind of a stud because you didn't just walk in to see the king and go, dude, what's up? Because the king could just kill you at a whim. So Nathan went in and did what God told him to, and it wasn't easy. But Nathan goes in and he tells David this story. He says, he says David, King David, sire, whatever he called him. But he goes in and he says, look, there was this guy, this poor guy, saved up all the money he could, and he bought himself a lamb, a little ewe lamb, and loved this lamb, let her drink from his own cup. He slept with her. She was everything to it. It's all he had. And there was a rich dude also lived in the same town. He had cattle and sheep on every hill you could see around there. The guy was super rich, had tons and tons of stuff. The rich guy had a friend come to visit, so... Traditionally, back then, you have a friend come to visit, you kill a calf, you kill a lamb, you kill something and feed this person. It was just part of the process to not be rude and not be seen as a doofus. 
So instead of killing one of his own, which he had hundreds, maybe thousands of, he goes and takes the one away from this poor guy who only has the one. He kills it and feeds it to his friend. David is just mad. He is furious. He says, that guy deserves to die. You tell me who it is, and I'm telling you right now, I will make sure that he pays back at least fourfold for what he did to this man. Nathan looks David right in the eye, and that's where we pick it up in verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's, I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. David was confronted finally with this sin, all of this stuff that he did in secret, right? He, he committed a sin, then he starts committing more sins to try and cover that one up. He just piles it on, piles it on, piles it on until he's committed murder. And he thinks he's gotten away with it because he's brought Bathsheba into his home, he's made her his wife, and, you know... Uriah the Hittite is a hero who died in battle, blah, 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 all of this stuff. And Nathan comes to him and confronts him with it. Mike, I thought we were doing Psalms. We are. This is very important that we understand this before we look at Psalm 51. And we're going to come back to this, some of the stuff in here too. But Psalm 51 was written right after this happened. David was confronted with his sin, cried out to God, and Psalm 51 was written. So it's important to understand that backstory, what was going on with Nathan, what he had done to Uriah, what had happened with Bathsheba, all of that stuff. If we're going to look at Psalm 51 and really understand what's going on there and really get the message out of it that I think God intends for us, we have to know that backstory. So keep that all in your mind as we read through Psalm 51 and start talking about those things. So some, some things to remember as we are working through this uh, about the story that, uh, that we just talked about and also about what's going on in Psalm 51. The first one is that David's rightfully accused by God. God, A, doesn't wrongfully accuse anybody. He's not, he's not capable of it. David had screwed up badly and just compounded the problem with piling one sin on top of the other. And, and God accuses him rightfully of these sins. He gets confronted with that, and David's reaction is the key. David's reaction is the key to Psalm 51. It's also the key to his continuing relationship with God. It's also part of how we need to look at, at David overall. 
about how he lived his life, about how he was chosen, became the king, led the nation of Israel, all of the stuff that he did. Because David responded with a contrite heart, with brokenness, by crying out and asking for forgiveness. He responded with a contrite heart, with brokenness, by crying out and asking for forgiveness. Those are key things, not just for David. They're key things for us. Because I can promise you we're going to sin. We have sinned. We will continue to sin. And we're going to be confronted with that. God doesn't miss it. We can't hide that from God. He knows about it. He's going to confront us with those things. Whether publicly or privately, it doesn't matter. We will be confronted with our sin. How we respond when that happens is key to what our relationship with God is like. Over time and in that moment. So, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right (coughs) when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Do you hear in that David in the aftermath of being confronted with the sin that he committed against Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite? I mean, I hope you do. If we read this psalm in that context... The understanding of that story, the understanding of what prompted David to cry out to God in this way, then I think it gives us a whole new appreciation for for why David said the things that he did, why he wrote these things down, why he sang to God in this manner. And there, as in any pastoral message, several key points that I want to try and bring out from this. But the first one and the main one is the idea of brokenness. Broken. David is broken. When he's confronted by Nathan, when he's confronted with what he did, he's broken. He immediately cries out and says, I have sinned against God. And brokenness is is this turning away from self. Uh, it's this understanding that, that we're being ruled by self. 
And that as long as we allow that to happen, we can't pursue God. We cannot be in proximity to God the way that we're supposed to be, the way that he calls us to be, and the way that we should want to be. So brokenness is a response to realizing that I have come to rely on myself, that I have been doing everything because it's something that was important to me, whether God liked it or not, all of that stuff. The whole thing with Bathsheba and then killing Uriah the Hittite was David focused on David, not on God. And that's where all of us end up a lot of the time. I know I do. And, and it should be devastating to us when we realize that's happening. And that's where David is when he writes this psalm. He's devastated. Now, part of it is probably a devastation that his sin has now become public because none of us want to have that stuff out there where everybody knows about it, right? But I think the main thing for David was just the devastation at the realization that he had sinned this badly against God. I mean, David is called the man after God's own heart, right? In Scripture, we read that. And this was a dude that slept with a guy's wife and then had him murdered. Among other stuff that we know that David did, if we've read Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and all that stuff. So I think we can take solace in the fact that, that David was a man after God's own heart in spite of his sinfulness. It means that we can be a man or a woman after God's own heart in spite of our sinfulness, right? And it's about brokenness. It's about this turning away from self, understanding that we're broken. Uh, and the thing is that in life, we, we live in this constant sort of flux, this tension between I'm doing stupid stuff and I'm broken. Okay? I, I do anyway. There's this tension all the time that, God, I want to be about me, or God, I want to be about you. We can't be both. Those things are in opposite directions. But being better at being broken is about being better at recognizing when I am pursuing myself. I mean, ultimately all sin is, is pride. And pride is just choosing self over something else. I was going to say something else, but I think that's enough. Um, I, I know a lot of the folks who have who have been up here before me during this series have, have shared stories uh, that kind of illustrate what they're talking about. And I could tell you stories that illustrate what I'm talking about. Um, I'm, I'm not going to because I don't want to tell those stories. Uh, I've done a lot of dumb stuff in my life. I've sinned against God in ways that, that uh, uh, I'm ashamed of sinned against people in my life in ways that I'm ashamed of. But I want to make this point, and I want, it to be, I want it to be very clear. Brokenness is not about regret. Regret is, in a sense, another form of selfishness. Momentary regret about committing a sin, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, I'm talking about wallowing in it. I'm talking about living in it, about, about self-pity and about paralyzing yourself and stealing God's opportunity to provide you with the joy and the peace that he promises us by wallowing in regret. It's a form of self-pity. 
You, you lose the ability to be of service to God when you wallow in that regret. I mean, look at this thing with David. If you read on in, in uh, 2 Samuel after this, one of the things, there are consequences to sin, and one of the consequences for David's sin was the child that Bathsheba bore to him was a son, which was a huge deal for those guys. And God said, this child will not live. That's part of the consequence <coughs> for your sin. The child's going to die. The child got sick. David fasted for seven days while the child was sick. And he cried out to God and he prayed. And he said, please let the boy live. On the seventh day, the child died. David got up then. His, his, his uh, servants were scared to death to tell him. He said, he hasn't eaten in seven days. He won't talk to anybody. All he does is lay here on the floor and mourn. If we tell him this child has died, that may put him completely over the edge. We may lose him entirely. David heard him whisper, and he got up and he said, what is it? Has the boy died? And they said, yes, sir, the boy died. He got up, washed himself, cleaned himself up, put on the lotions and oils, and went and got something to eat. And they were like, dude, what's up? Why now that the child has died, are you getting up and, and going about your day, your normal life? And David said, while the boy was still alive, there was a chance that my repentance and crying out to God could save him. But now that he's died, God's will has been done, and it's time to move on. David didn't lie on that floor after the kid died. David didn't lie on that floor lamenting and crying out and saying, God, I'm useless and I'm worthless and wallow in that regret. He regretted what he had done, but he did not let that rule him. He got up and continued to be the man after God's own heart. Continued to turn and repent and go after God. So brokenness is not about regret. Brokenness is about recognizing that I'm pursuing myself, that I'm mired in this sin, coming out of that and pursuing God as hard as I can through brokenness. That's what it's about. You have to see that. You have to. We, we're here to, to pursue God. I mean, we're here to seek God. That's what, that's what God wants us to do. And we do that through brokenness. And, and the, the two things that, that I always come back to when I'm, when I'm either when, I, when I'm doing stupid stuff or when I'm actually being broken and pursuing God the right way, the two things that I come back to are we we get on the path to the pursuit of God through brokenness and we come into proximity with God through adoration, worship. Now there's a ton of other things you read in the Bible, spiritual disciplines and all the other stuff that, that the Bible talks about, that these are the things that God likes and, and, and things that we should pursue as Christians and things that will help draw us closer to God. But it comes down to these two things. I'm broken so I repent and I turn away from myself and I approach God in adoration. Those two things are encapsulated in all those other things. So brokenness and adoration, that's our, that's, our, that's our impetus toward God and our path to get there, the way that we approach it. Those two things, if you remember those two things and practice those two things, all of the other stuff will become part of that. They will fold right into that process. They will, they will become part of your life uh, and and the joy and the peace and the rest that Josh was talking about, those things, they're poured out from all of that stuff. 
And the key to this to remember is that we can't do any of it. We can't even decide to do any of it. We can't even recognize we need to do any of it in the absence of God's prompting. Paul talks about it in Ephesians where he's talking about uh, shoot, 2, 8, and 7, and 8 or something like that. But he basically says God is the source of our faith. God is the one who prompts us to have faith. We didn't do anything. We can't even begin that process in the absence of God's prompting because if we could, we would brag about it. We'd take credit for it. So God does it for us. God pushes us in that direction to recognize our sin, to turn from that sin, to respond to him in faith, to be broken, and to approach him with adoration. Remember that. that that's key. We can't, it, it's just more self if we start taking credit for that. And we do. I mean, I, Lord knows I've done it. You know, I've thought to myself and even probably told other people, and by probably I mean I have, um, that... You know, all the good things I've done. Here's what I've done in ministry. Here's what I've done because of my faith. Here's all this stuff that I've done. That, that's self-talking. If I've ever done anything good, it was God who did it. If I say anything up here today that strikes a chord with you, that moves your heart, that gives you more information about who God is, a better way to think about this stuff, it's because God did it, not because I you know, I mean, I can take credit for that. I can go, yeah, well, hey, I'm awesome and I did that. But that just makes me dumb because I didn't. Um, I, one of the things that I really, that always jumps out at me when I read this psalm is, in, uh, where the heck is it? There it is. In verse, verses 16 and 17. David says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Okay, so that's weird because everything about Jewish culture back then, everything about their approach to God was in sacrifices and burnt offerings, right? Because Jesus hadn't come yet. We were waiting for all of that. God was promising that. God was showing what that would look like through this process. But... Redemption for the nation, confession of sins, all of that stuff was tied up in the temple worship, or in this case, the tabernacle, because the temple hadn't been built yet. Tabernacle worship, where you come in and, and you make sacrifices, and the priest takes them in and sacrifices them to God, and, and uh, the annual feasts and celebrations they had to show who God was and all of that stuff. And David writes, you don't care about any of that. But if you look at the next verse... He's saying what God actually cares about and why he made that statement. Verse 17 says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. We read that in all kinds of places. We see it. Jesus is born into this situation where you got Sadducees and Pharisees, you've got the Sanhedrin, those guys run everything. The nation of Israel is under Roman law, but the Romans allow the Jews to continue their religion, and Sadducees and Pharisees are the ones who give out all the rules. And they live lives that abide by those rules. And as soon as Jesus starts his public ministry, he's attacking those guys constantly. He calls them sons of hell, unwashed 
tombs, a pit of vipers, all kind of stuff. And he uses them, he holds them up as an example. You remember the one story where Jesus tells this uh, story to his disciples. He says, there's a, there's a Pharisee in the, in the uh, temple and he's praying and he's crying. He's telling all the, dear God, I've, I always give 10%. I always do this. I always do that. I always do this. There's a tax collector on the other end who's on his face crying out to God because he's such a sinner. And the, the Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. And Jesus says, be like that guy, not the Pharisee, because the Pharisee does not know who God is. And the Pharisee was living out by the letter of the law everything he was supposed to do according to what they had been given by God. What had come down off the mountain with Moses, all the stuff that had come out of that whole process. And Jesus says, that is useless because his heart doesn't know God. He is not broken. In, uh, in uh, Malachi, we read about a lot of the same stuff that, uh, that Rebecca was talking about in Psalm 78 when she re- read it to, to us this morning. Malachi is, is the last prophet. That's the last book we have in the Bible. That's the, sort of the transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Malachi is writing about the nation of Israel. He says, you don't bring sacrifices, or when you do, you're doing it out of a sense of duty and drudgery. You don't know who God is. You don't care about God. You're just trying to, to make an appearance, whatever it is. Don't. Don't waste your time. Don't waste God's time. He doesn't want that. He wants a broken and contrite heart. You come with sacrifice with that. God sees that. He loves it. He wants it. We read in, in the New Testament, Paul's talking about bringing uh, offerings to church. And he says, he says, if you come up in here with those offerings as a sense of duty or a sense of something you think you can do because it gets you closer to God, keep it. God doesn't need your money. It all belongs to him. It all belongs to him. Keep it. Come in here with a heart that is broken by sin and seeking God. That's your offering. And all of that other stuff will flow out of it. If you're broken and seeking God, you'll want to give. Not out of a sense of duty or drudgery or self-preservation or anything else, but because you love God so much you can't not do it. That's the message of brokenness. Um... uh, Pastor Mike Bird spoke here several times, obviously, but one of those times he said something really stuck in my head. And uh, to be honest with you, I'd, I'd, I'd probably have to sit down for a while and have some water if, to remember exactly what he was preaching about or go back and listen to it. But the phrase he used was genuinely converted, blood-bought believer in Christ. And that stuck in my head. And if you know how bad my memory is, you would be amazed. You would understand just how much that phrase hit me for me to remember it like that. But Mike was talking about genuinely converted, blood-bought believers in Christ. Those are people who are broken. Those are people who understand their sin. Those are people who get that self rules us if we don't turn to God in brokenness and approach Him with adoration. That's what we need to be. Genuinely converted, blood-bought believers in Christ. 
approach God in brokenness, adore Him, seek Him as hard as you can. He gives us that. He gives us the ability to seek Him. <laughs> okay. I'm running a little long. That's not uncommon for me. Um, a couple of things I want to uh, close with. And it, have you ever noticed when a pastor says, a couple of things I want to close with, he's not really closing yet. But the things that we've been asking ourselves through this whole series, since, since Rick started talking about Psalms uh, a couple of months ago, I think it was, when we started all this, is as we read these Psalms, ask ourselves some questions. First question, what does this reveal about the character of God? Second question, knowing now what this is revealing about the character of God, what does it mean for me personally, and what does it mean for North Church? So those three questions, I want to talk about those a little bit. I mean, if we look at Psalm 51, we see a variety of things that I think it reveals about God. One is forgiveness. Because, and for implicit verification of this, I refer you back to uh, what we read in 2 Samuel. After Nathan makes all these accusations against David and tells him what God has said and how it's going to be affecting him and how the consequences of sin are going to go, David says, I have sinned against God. Nathan's very next statement is, God has forgiven you. God has forgiven you. It's the very next thing he says to him. And this psalm, I, I think that if we read it in light of the understanding of that story in the context of what David had done and what Nathan had done, I think we see David's recognition and acceptance of that forgiveness in this psalm. And that's, that's one of the key things about the character of God is forgiveness. From the moment he created with full knowledge that we were going to sin and turn away from him, he's been planning our forgiveness. Every person in this room at that moment, God was planning your forgiveness or your opportunity to be forgiveness. The offering, the drawing of you into that opportunity of forgiveness. God wasn't surprised when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. He's not surprised when we sin. He's provided this opportunity for forgiveness to us since before the creation of the world. He's always reached out for us, always will. So forgiveness is a key attribute of God that I think that, that we have to see there, but also justice, which is part of that. There were, David's, David's sin was not free. There are consequences for that. And any sin that we commit, even a sin that we think we got away with, something we've done in, in, in secret and think nobody knows about, and maybe nobody does know about, it still has consequences. It has consequences in your own life, but it also ripples out into the lives of the people around you because you're different. You're a different person when you commit that sin and think you got away with it. If you aren't broken by that sin and turned back to God by it, things are different in your life. And it affects those around you. So justice is also part of who God is. Love and compassion. Uh, in verse 1, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love and according to your great compassion. Attributes of God that, that if he didn't have those, none of us would have a chance, right? We'd have no hope. Our hope lies in, in the love, the unfailing love, and the great compassion, and the forgiveness that God has promised us. That's where our hope is. 
So those attributes of God are, are extremely important. And I think that uh, another one that we see here is sovereignty. And it's not obvious or implicit in, in what we read. But I think that's woven throughout all of the Psalms and all of Scripture is the sovereignty of God. The idea that God is, God has known about this since before he created, that God has been in control of this since before he created, that God has a plan that we are all working toward, that we are all building toward at the end of time when we all get to be with God. Finally, finally in this world, I just cry out sometimes and go, come on, let's do it because this, it's getting crazy. But sovereignty, are you... Or would David going to cry out in brokenness and adoration to a God who is not sovereign? You shouldn't. And we won't. Crap. We won't respond in brokenness and adoration to a God who is sovereign. Many times. We live our lives in, in, in this commitment to self. Ignoring the pleas and the cries of God to come back, turn back, be broken. The sovereignty of God is huge in this. And for us and, and for the church, I mean, I, I think this, the real message here is accept that forgiveness. Understand, understand that we're forgiven. I mean, that's one of the hardest things is accepting a gift like that. Trying to wrap our minds around it. I mean, we can't, we don't know the mind of God. We obviously can't understand it the way that He does, the way that He intends it fully. But accept forgiveness. Don't live in regret. Don't wallow in self pity. Accept the forgiveness. Accept the consequences of your sin and move on with the work that God has given you to do. Because He's given you stuff to do. And you do it in brokenness and adoration. Not out of a sense of duty or a belief that by doing more stuff, God will like me better. You just do it out of brokenness and adoration for forgiveness of sin in spite of God's holiness and in spite of how unholy we are. We can approach God. That's a key message for this. David approaches God constantly, whether he's surrounded by enemies, whether he's just won a great victory, whether he's just been confronted with a horrible sin, he approaches God. He cries out to God. And all of this is through brokenness and adoration. Those are the things that allow him to do that. They're the things that prompt him to do that. So be willing to approach God. Crying out to God is the path of joy. Look at verses 10 and 11. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then the last thing is in the next verse, which is that if we're going to be as a church... The beacon that draws people to Christ, we have to cry out to God in brokenness and adoration. The very next verse says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. If you, God, if you 
Create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Then I can teach transgressors about who you are and draw them to you. If we as a church and we as individuals within the church cry out to God in brokenness and adoration, accept this forgiveness, have this renewed spirit that David's talking about, that's what's going to draw people to the church. That's what's going to draw people to Christ. It's, it's how we have to live our lives. Otherwise, we're just recruiting. We're just recruiting for a club, trying to get people to come and hang out because they like us or somebody else who's here. Showing them who God is, is about living life in this zone of brokenness and adoration. Let's pray. God, we love you. Um, I, I confess my failings. I uh, confess that uh, I, so much of my life is spent outside of brokenness. So much of what I do is about me and not about you. And, and, uh, and I beg your forgiveness for that, Father. I ask you to renew in me a clean heart to create in me that spirit that cries out to you father i pray that uh, we all would see you that way see ourselves the way you see us which is with unfailing love and great mercy father we love you and we thank you in christ's name amen